This is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look inside your genes. Why do some people stay fit as a fiddle while others seem to catch every bug that's going? As you might expect, the answer lies in our genes. There are other bacteria that are completely harmless to 99.9% of the population and 1% will come down and be critically ill. Plus a multitude of mutant mice and an unseeing gene of the month. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for August 2013 with me, Dr Katarni, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. From the moment we're born, we're exposed to millions of bacteria and viruses in the world around us. Most of the time, they don't make us ill, but if they do, we can usually fight off the infection. But for some people, it's a different story and they can become desperately sick. I spoke to Dr Julian Knight from the Wellcome Trust Centre for Human Genomics at the University of Oxford to find out how genetic studies are helping to reveal more about these differences. A classical approach that people have used is to look at the very rare examples of patients who have a specific uh, genetic difference that predisposes them to a particular um, disease. Uh, For example, with very young children, they may be born and have... um, genetic differences that result in severe uh, what we call primary immune deficiencies where they're very vulnerable to infections. The other way of thinking about the genetic contribution to to immune-related diseases with common diseases which might include um, infections uh, or autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. And we now have the genetic tools to actually try and look across the whole genome and look for for what are often several different genes and genetic differences that may be contributing to the same disease. And that's really been driven by new technologies that have become available to us uh, within the field of human genetics, such that rather than focusing on a single gene, we can now look at many thousands of different genes and indeed many millions of, of different genetic differences. I guess to draw an analogy, it would be a bit like uh, the more severe diseases, you look at a car and the wheel's fallen off and you can see that. Whereas I guess what you're trying to do with the population is saying, well, some people are more like a Ferrari, some people are more like a a Fiat Panda. How do you even go about classifying all those huge number of differences? An approach that's been successful over the last uh, four or five years is to take uh, a set of patients, so you define a particular disease phenotype, so the the condition with which the patients are manifesting. And then you define a set of individuals who are controls, who don't have your disease. And you try and look for the genetic variants that that are in one group but not present in the other. By doing that, you can try and build up a map of where those genetic differences are lying and what particular genes they may or may not be influencing because it may be that a genetic difference is, is, is arising within the coding sequence of a gene, and that would change the structure and the function of the protein that's encoded by the gene, and that might be something that you can fairly readily detect. Or it might be that it's a genetic difference lying outside of the gene within the regulatory sequence that controls how much protein we produce. 
And although those are more subtle, they're perhaps more common and uh, very much more important in these uh, complex disease traits than we'd initially anticipated. So what do we know so far about the kinds of genes that are involved in regulating our immune system and and some of the differences between people Mm. and their immune systems? We've got some evidence that goes back a long time in, 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 in terms of genetics research. We're talking 40 or 50 years now that we've understood that genes within a region of, on the short arm of chromosome 6 called the major histocompatibility complex. And we know that genetic differences in that region are critical to uh, encoding uh, proteins that present foreign antigens um, to the immune system. And that's critical in our response to infection. So this is like uh, picking something up and going, look at this immune system, recognise this and fight it. Absolutely, and it's quite, it, that takes quite complicated machinery to break up the protein, load it on to a, what we call a presenting molecule that can then be taken to the surface of the cell and other cells within the immune system can recognise that and initiate what we hope is an appropriate immune response to deal with that infection. And in some instances we think that that process goes wrong and that can lead either to an excessive immune response which might actually be harmful to us Um, or indeed it might be that the body starts to fight itself and that can lead to autoimmune diseases. But now that we can look at the rest of the genome, we know that outside of the MHC there are also important genetic differences between people and patients in particular that contribute to developing the the risk of disease. When we discover more about these genes, not only is this helping us to understand who's more vulnerable to certain diseases or not, would this explain why... Some people, for example, seem to get flu all the time or uh, some people just seem to be very sickly and others are very robust. Absolutely. You know, so over in the hospital we see elderly patients who are very dependent and are coming perhaps from a nursing home with a severe infection. And despite um, the pessimism that there might be in some of those situations, these patients can be remarkable and they can survive. And we know that people differ in, in, in how well they are able to respond to infection, how appropriately they can respond to infection. Given that this is still a major killer in our society uh, in terms of severe sepsis, the mortality rate on intensive care units is still of the order of 20%. Um, Understanding this, this very basic biology in terms of why some people are able to survive and overcome severe infection, I think is potentially very important because it it can lead us into potentially new therapeutic avenues, uh, drug targets, for example, or indeed being able to better understand where and who we should be targeting therapy for. It may be that possessing particular genetic differences means you produce more or less of a particular protein critical to an immune response. And if we can understand that both at a population level and in the lab um, then hopefully we can go some way forward to understanding the genetic basis of these diseases. The knowledge that you're gaining now about how people's immune systems respond in different ways to diseases and to things like sepsis, Mm. how close are we seeing this genetic knowledge actually coming into the clinic and benefiting patients? Well, I think that we're perhaps still two or three years away from really understanding with confidence what these genetic contributors are to diseases such as severe sepsis. We have been able to identify in specific patients who have rare inherited defects or problems with their immune response at particular genes, and that can be very helpful in terms of making a diagnosis and guiding therapy. 
But it may be that if we can understand these genetic um, causes better and predispositions, then perhaps there are some patients who might benefit from therapies who we can target specifically uh, to use, use such therapies. And by only targeting those patients who are going to benefit, we can avoid the, the downside of these sorts of therapies, which paradoxically increase your risk of, of infection in some cases. So I think that there is a hope that by using genetics, we can more rationally use uh, existing drugs. We can identify targets whereby we can develop new drugs or use existing drugs in new ways. We may be able to reduce what is really a, still a devastating disease where, whereby we're um, faced with high mortality rates despite best care in terms of uh, the intensive care units and available antibiotics and so on. And I think that's what motivates a lot of people who are interested in trying to, to use these new, new genetic approaches in a whole range of, of, of different diseases. That was Dr Julian Knight from the Wellcome Trust Centre for Human Genomics. Coming up later, we'll be looking in more depth at how genes affect childhood infections. But first, it's time to look at this month's genetics news. Researchers at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute have published the first batch of results from an ambitious project aiming to systematically knock out or delete every single gene in mice, one at a time. Not only have the results provided a whole bunch of scientific surprises, but the scientists are creating an incredibly valuable resource for biomedical researchers around the world. Here's Professor Karen Steele, lead researcher for the project, to explain more. The Sanger Institute several years ago set up a project called the Mouse Genetics Project and the aim of this was to develop a large panel of uh, new mouse mutants, each of them with a single gene uh, targeted or, or mutated. Then, with these mutants, we put them through a screening process to pick out a wide variety of different signs of different diseases and also variations in normal phenotype, normal aspect of the, the function of the mouse. And what sort of diseases were you looking at? Uh, the, the whole range, ranging from uh, hearing and deafness, which is my own personal interest, to uh, metabolism, to vision defects, uh, through to general developmental defects that could affect the development and morphology of any part of the body and fertility and viability. So a very wide range of things. What did you find when you looked at all these mice doing all these things? What did we find? Well, we've, we've just published the first analysis of the first 250 um, mouse lines that we've generated. And one of the things that we found from that was that some of those genes were known, well-known, and other genes were completely unknown, that nothing had been published about them previously. And uh, what we found was that we were just as likely to find uh, some phenotype, some aspect of the function of the mouse uh, in those new genes, those novel genes that hadn't really been described properly before other than their sequence, compared to the well-known genes. So what that tells us is there's a lot of genes out there in the genome that nobody is paying attention to or studying. And really they are likely to be a very rich resource for finding associations between genes and between function, and particularly between genes and diseases. So we need to look outside the usual suspects and start looking at all these other genes as well. Absolutely, yes. Uh, and, of course, some of the genes that we uh, studied uh, were already known and there have been papers published about them. But by doing a systematic screen, putting every mouse line through the same battery of tests, we found new aspects of their phenotype that hadn't been published before, that hadn't been found before. 
So it gives a much fuller picture of what is likely to be going wrong as a result of the mutation in specific single genes. So you've looked at 250 different mouse uh, mutations so far. How many more have you got to go and how long is that going to take? Well, there are 20,000 genes <laughs> approximately in the a mouse long genome. Time. <laughs> so it's going to take a while. Uh, at the Sanger Institute, we've generated over 900 uh, mouse lines so far. So we're getting uh, along quite well. Um, it's still a long way to go before we get all of the genes. As we generate those mouse mutants and um, breed enough mice to put through the screening, then the data from those new lines are going onto the website. And one of the really key aspects of this resource is that it's a public resource. So anybody can go and look on the website and find all of the data about the phenotypes, the characteristics of these different mouse mutants. And scientists uh, and clinicians can also get access to the mouse models themselves so that they can get that mouse into their own laboratory and do their own specialised tests because they're the experts in their own disease areas. And so they're likely to be able to do a much more detailed analysis than we can do as part of a, a screen That was Professor Karen Steele, now at King's College London, but previously at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute, where this work was done. Moving from mice to humans, this month the charity Cancer Research UK announced their own ambitious project, sequencing the genes in tumour samples from more than 800 patients with lung cancer and tracking how they evolve over time in response to treatment. It's hoped that the study, called Tracer X, will revolutionise scientists' understanding of the genetic faults that underpin lung cancer and reveal more about tumour evolution and so-called tumour heterogeneity, the fact that cancer cells within a single patient can have different genetic makeups. Here's the project's leader, Professor Charlie Swanton, talking to Cancer Research UK's Greg Jones. So we're going to be looking at um, how lung cancers, principally non-small cell lung cancers, change over time and how their spatial and temporal variation gives us some insights into potential new therapeutic strategies for patients. So um, what we've realised from our work over the last year or two is that tumours are not just single entities but they're composed of multiple different subclones that may be intermingled or spatially separated. And what we're also realising that tumours are evolving over time. So there's a spatial and temporal aspect to tumour biology that many of the sequencing approaches we've been taking so far have largely um, not taken into account, um, principally because of the cost involved and also, um, I think, the awareness now that um, tumours are markedly more heterogeneous than perhaps we had imagined initially. So um, the idea with TracerX, which stands for Tracking Cancer Evolution Through Therapy, is that we, take, we ask patients with primary non-small cell lung cancer to consent to this study, which would enable us to acquire any tumour material that is surplus to pathology requirements following surgery. So these are patients with primary operable lung cancer. And then we will subject each tumour to multiple sequencing approaches to identify what are the shared mutations in every region and what are the diverse heterogeneous mutations in every region. And then if the patient is unfortunate enough to suffer recurrence of disease or metastatic disease, we'll ask if the patient would kindly consent to a further biopsy so that we can then compare the biopsy at sites of um, metastatic disease to the original primary to ask the principal question, how has the disease changed over time, to better understand the biology of metastatic disease, to better understand resistance to therapy, and ultimately to come up with better clinical approaches to treat this disease to stop this from happening. 
Can you explain why this is going to be such an enormous undertaking in terms of the amount of data you're going to generate? So we're, we're sequencing tumours from 850 patients, but we're not just sequencing one tumour. We're sequencing up to six, seven or even eight um, coding exomes from each tumour um, during the disease course. Now, a coding exome has about 50 million base pairs. Um, and we're sequencing at a depth that is relatively unprecedented in these studies at 500x so-called X coverage. And so if you take that into account, um, along with the um, number of tumours we're sequencing and the number of regions we're sequencing within each tumour, and comparing primary to metastatic disease, we're talking about a need, a requirement for probably six petabytes worth of data storage and the equivalent probably of sequencing 42,500 whole genomes at 1x coverage in order to really get to grips with the diversity within a single tumour. That was Professor Charlie Swanton from the Cancer Research UK London Institute. And now it's time to take a look at the rest of this month's top genetic stories. Scientists at Boston Children's Hospital have discovered that mice carrying a faulty version of a gene called MRAP2 gain weight, even while eating the same amount as their genetically normal counterparts. The genes involved in a signalling pathway in the brain that increases energy burning while decreasing appetite. Writing in the journal Science, the scientists suggest that mice with a faulty version of MRAP2 seem to be hanging on to fat rather than burning it. Interestingly, the animals gained even more weight on a high-fat diet compared to regular mice. Faults in the human version of the gene have also been found in severely obese people, suggesting that MRAP2 could play an important role in weight control and energy balance. US researchers studying the genetic makeup of hundreds of people in Bangladesh have tracked down key regions of the genome that could be responsible for making some people more susceptible to infection with the bacteria that cause cholera, publishing their results in the journal Science Translational Medicine. The genetic regions harbour genes involved in the immune system and regulation of fluid loss, among others. The next step is to pin down the exact genes responsible for the differences in susceptibility and find out what they're doing. Cholera is still widespread in many parts of the world and can kill within hours. The scientists hope their discovery will pave the way for better vaccines and treatments to help cut the death toll of cholera outbreaks in the future. Chinese scientists have made an important breakthrough in stem cell technology, showing that they can convert adult cells into stem cells with the capacity to become any type of tissue using just chemicals rather than genetic engineering. Back in 2006, Nobel Prize winner Shinya Yamanaka showed that adding a cocktail of genes to adult cells could take them back to a stem cell state, known as inducible pluripotent stem cells. Now Hongkui Deng and his team have managed to get the same effect in mouse cells using just a handful of chemicals. The researchers who published their findings in the journal Science this month are now trying to get the technique to work in human cells, although it is proving tricky. But if they can make it work, it could be extremely useful, as four of the compounds are already in clinical use. But for now, we'll have to wait and see. And if you want to find out more about these stories, the references are all on our website. That's thenakedscientist.com slash genetics. You're listening to the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Dr Kat Arney. Still to come, we'll be getting the lowdown on the latest research into gene therapy for epilepsy. But now it's time to find out a bit more about genes and the immune system. Perhaps one of the best places to see the role of genetics in shaping the immune system is in childhood. All kids are exposed to a huge range of bugs, but only a very small proportion will get life-threatening infections, when most others will be fine. 
Even in developed countries like the UK, childhood infections are a big problem and hundreds of children die from bacterial and viral infections every year. Mike Levine is Professor of Paediatrics and International Child Health and Director of the Wellcome Centre for Clinical Tropical Medicine at Imperial College London. I caught up with him to find out more about the genetics of childhood infections. So as children are born and grow through childhood, they're exposed to an absolute zoo of different bacteria. So, you know, a baby's born from a sterile womb and in minutes of coming out into the world, they are colonised by all sorts of bacteria that are in the environment. Now, mostly, as the child develops, they come to no harm. Their immune system keeps the bacteria where they should be. That's on the skin, on the mucosal surfaces, inside your gut. But one in 20,000 or one in 50,000 children, the bacteria invade from the mucosal surfaces, the nose, the throat, the bowel, get into the bloodstream and cause life-threatening infection. That process of why does one child come down with the infection and not others is partly controlled by the virulence of the bacteria. So there seem to be some bacteria that are worse than others. So there are certain bacteria which are more likely to invade if they meet a young child. But there are other bacteria that are completely harmless to 99.9% of the population. 1% will come down and be critically ill. Can you tell me a bit more about the particular study that you're involved in looking at how genetics influence childhood disease? We were very fortunate to be awarded a major grant which is funding a study called EUCLIDS, which stands for the European Union Childhood Life-Threatening Infectious Diseases Study. Essentially what it is, is it's recruiting children who are admitted with infection from multiple hospitals in the UK, as well as from multiple hospitals in Holland, Spain, Austria, Germany, and probably soon Switzerland, as well as the Gambia in West Africa. And this is enabling us to establish very large numbers of patients who very carefully studied, and the Grant also provides the funding to apply very sophisticated genetics, including sequencing and genome-wide association methods, to this very large cohort. And we hope that the study will provide very good information on the genetic basis of a range of different childhood infections, including staphylococcus infection, streptococcus infection, pneumococcus, meningococcus and salmonella, which are very important childhood pathogens. Where are we heading in terms of turning this into benefits for children and actually improving child health? Well, I think there are a number of reasons why unravelling the genetic basis of how the immune system responds to bacteria is going to help in future. The first is that, obviously, for very severe defects, if you know what the gene is, you can test for it, and you can offer counselling and treatment of those that are affected. For example, there are a set of gene defects in um, a gene and a protein in the blood called complement, which you need to kill the meningococcus bacteria. And if you're found to lack this protein complement, then you're going to be at lifelong risk of coming down with meningococcal disease. And we can treat those patients by giving them preventative antibiotics. So that's the the simplest example, if we know what the gene is and we can offer prevention. The more sort of subtle example is that if we know how the immune system works to stop getting an infection, 
um, which the, the gene defects are often a clue to, then we know what sort of immune, immune effect we need to stimulate with a vaccine. So understanding how the immune system works through the genetics can improve understanding of how to develop vaccines. And I suppose the third way is that it looks like not only do genes control who gets the infection, they also control how bad it is and what the outcome is. So there's some people who will get a bacteria in their bloodstream and they'll come into hospital and receive a course of antibiotics and go home and are cured completely. And there are other children that come in, become devastatingly ill and may die or lose limbs in a matter of hours. It looks as if those different responses are also genetically controlled. And again, if we understand what is going to make one child become catastrophically ill and another one become milder, then one can develop strategies to improve the outcome. And I think, again, the genetics is a powerful clue to why some people do badly and others do better. It seems only in a a matter of maybe a hundred years we've gone from many, many children dying in childhood from simple infectious diseases to now a point where, certainly in in developed countries, many, many children are saved. Where do you think we're going to be heading in the next ten years? Where would you like to be? I think, hopefully, um, the reduction in childhood mortality from infection that has been seen in the developed world will be extended to the less... Uh, resource-rich areas of the world. So I think we would hope that the advances in prevention of infection through vaccination, hygiene and treatment, which has meant infection causes fewer deaths in Europe, the United States, will start happening in Africa and Asia. So I think that's a, a big goal. Although infection has declined as an importance since the earlier part of last century, it's still there. So, you know, those of us working in paediatric services continually see children admitted critically ill with life-threatening infections like meningitis, septicemia, pneumonia, osteomyelitis, trying to work out how to improve the outcome for those that are infected, trying to work out how better to prevent infection is going to remain a research challenge. So all the research is is still needed because many of the infections are still with us. There's still a major problem, although things are very much better than they were 100 years ago, there's certainly no room for complacency. And a large part of the workload of paediatric services, paediatric intensive care, is still infectious diseases. That was Professor Mike Levine from Imperial College. And now it's time to look at your burning genetics questions with the help of naked scientist Martha Enriquez. Listener Richard Salmon wanted to know whether the experimental epilepsy group at UCL, working on a gene cure for seizure disorders, have progressed to human trials. Their study, published last November in Science Translational Medicine, showed that introducing a genetically modified virus to a brain region which generates the epileptic seizures suppressed excitability of that region, significantly reducing the effect of seizures. Stephanie Shorge, an author of that study at UCL, told me that the group's application for human trials has been submitted. She explained that the first human trials for this viral treatment will be in patients who could have the current standard treatment for this type of epilepsy, in which the brain region generating the seizures is surgically removed. Stephanie Shorge. 
we give maybe five patients our treatment, and then if the seizures get better, great, we're, we're happy. If the seizures don't get better, we could have that secondary treatment of having the tissue that was injected with the virus that is causing the seizures and having that cut out. So in a way, that's a safety thing in humans that we're injecting tissue that we know otherwise would have been removed anyway. And then if it proves safe and effective in these five patients, we go to our next population, which is our ultimate population, which are patients who have seizures coming from parts of the brain which we know cannot be cut out. And these patients who have seizures arising, say, from the motor cortex, which controls an arm, if we can show that in animals injecting this virus has no effect on movement, then we think that if we inject the same virus into the human cortex is also unlikely to affect movement. Thanks to Stephanie Shorge for that answer and to Richard Salmon for his question. If you've got any questions about genes, DNA and genetics you'd like us to answer, just email them to genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can tweet us at Naked Genetics or post on our Facebook page. And finally, our gene of the month is Eyeless, a fruit fly gene that has close relatives across the whole animal kingdom. Flies with a faulty version of eyeless, as you might guess, fail to develop eyes. This is because the gene is a kind of master switch that sets up the whole eye-forming process in the developing embryo. The human version of eyeless is called Pax 6 and children who inherit a faulty version are born blind. There's also a version of eyeless in fish, highlighting its importance throughout evolution. By studying Pax 6 and eyeless, researchers are starting to understand how the instructions to make eyes are laid down, as well as gaining important insights into hereditary blindness. That's all for now. I'll be back again next month, and we'll be delving into genetics and genealogy. If you've got any questions or feedback, just email me. That's genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can get in touch through our Facebook page, that's nakedscientist.com slash Facebook, or tweet me at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is on iTunes or online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next month for another peek inside your genes. Genetics.